all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, where we discuss issues involving your children as they're growing up. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. Your child has a fever, but where is it coming from? Are they complaining of burning on urination? Are they having difficulty staying dry at night? Today we'll be talking about urinary tract infections and bedwetting in your child, so we would love to hear your questions if you think that they're having problems with both of those things or anything else related to their health. You can reach us today by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can send us an email to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens from MPB Think Radio. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson says security has been stepped up at the nation's airports following the terrorist attack on the Istanbul airport earlier this week. NPR's Brian Naylor reports Johnson says the attack bears the hallmark of Islamic State militants. Johnson told the Senate Judiciary Committee that one American suffered what he said were minor injuries in the attack. He said security at U.S. airports had already been increased after the attack on the Brussels airport in March and that travelers will encounter more during the holiday weekend. The American public should expect to see this July 4th weekend an enhanced security presence at airports train stations and other transit centers across the country. Johnson said his department, which includes the TSA, will not shortcut security because of increased numbers of travelers or longer waits for security. He said people should attend July 4th events but be vigilant and watchful. Brian Naylor, NPR News, Washington. Turkish authorities are quoted saying that the three suicide bombers who attacked Ataturk Airport on Tuesday are Russian, Uzbek and Kyrgyz nationals. Two officials briefed on the investigation tell NPR that they believe the suspects were among dozens of young men who entered Turkey about a month ago from Raqqa, which is at the heart of Syrian territory under ISIS control. Officials have raised concerns about ISIS leaders forward deploying fighters to Turkey with the goal of launching attacks there and against European targets as travel spikes during the vacation season. However, ISIS has not publicly declared it was behind this week's bombings in Istanbul. The attack has claimed at least 43 lives. The most recent victim was a Palestinian woman in her 20s who had sustained serious injuries. In another stunning turn of events in the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, a frontrunner to lead the U.K.'s ruling Conservative Party, is bowing out of the race. NPR's Frank Lightfoot notes the new leader of the Conservative Party would become Britain's next prime minister and would have to negotiate the terms of the U.K.'s risky exit from the European Union. Johnson's shocking announcement came after another topsy-turvy morning in British politics. Until this morning, it seemed Johnson planned to run with a team including Michael Gove, the U.K.'s Justice Secretary. But Gove suddenly announced that he didn't think Johnson, a two-time London mayor, was capable of actually leading the party. 
and in a surprise move of his own, Gove announced that he was going for the job himself. Gove's decision was seen as a big humiliation for Johnson. Gove joins Theresa May, the UK's Home Secretary, as the other major candidate to lead the Conservative Party. Frank Langford, NPR News, London. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was up 143 points at 17,837. S&P 500 up 15 at 2,086. NASDAQ is up 35 points. This is NPR News. An appeals court has overturned a $7.25 billion settlement approved between retailers, Visa and MasterCard, over credit card transaction fees. Today, the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the merchants and trade groups were not adequately represented. The court has also decertified the case as a class action. Alvin Toffler, author of the best-selling books Future Shock and the Third Wave, has died. As NPR's Laura Seidel reports, Toffler's ideas on the impact of accelerating social and technological change were highly influential among American and global leaders. Toffler wrote more than a dozen books about the cultural impact of moving from manufacturing-based economies to those driven by knowledge. And working with his wife, Dr. Heidi Toffler, he predicted the coming information age. Future Shocked, published in 1970, tracked society's development as a series of waves from the agricultural revolution to the information age. Toffler forecast that humans would be overwhelmed by the pace of change in everything from technology to politics. In 1994, House Speaker Newt Gingrich urged members of Congress to read Toffler's latest book, Creating a New Civilization. In 2006, the Chinese Communist Party named him to a list of 50 foreigners who significantly influenced the country. Laura Seidel, NPR News. More Americans have filed for unemployment insurance. The Labor Department's look at claims filed last week reveals applications rose by... 10,000 to a seasonally adjusted 268,000. However, the less volatile four-week average remains unchanged. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include AT&T, with a network and solutions for helping companies sense and adapt to meet the demands of business. Discover the power of and with AT&T. And the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation at gatesfoundation.org. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at UMMC and program director of the MedPeds Residency Program. You know, urinary tract infections are a common source of fever, particularly in younger individuals. 
And urinary pain in children is also common. But how do you know when they're having those things? Do they always need an antibiotic? What should you do? How do you diagnose those? All those questions around urinary tract infections. And what about recurrent infections in children? We'll be discussing these issues and more this morning. And we're going to talk about bedwetting which is always something that parents want to know more about and how to correct that. And we've got our special guest, Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, with us that I'll introduce in just a minute. As usual, we'll be taking your questions and comments. So if you have those about uh, uh, urinary tract infections or anything else that's going on with your kids and or your family, give us a call. We would love to hear from you. The number to call this morning is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. Dr. Kinsey, good morning. Good morning. I'm glad you're with us this morning. Thank you, Dr. Stewart. So so Jasmine is uh, one of my former residents and is now on uh, just starting. Actually, she's been on faculty uh, as chief resident in the pediatric uh, residency program for the past year and is now joining both the Departments of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from, and where you did your training. Okay, so I am originally from Huntsville, Alabama. That's where I spent most of my life. Um, I didn't go too far from home for college. I actually went to Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. And then right after that, I went to the University of South Alabama, in Mobile, Alabama, for my medical training. And then again, didn't go too far from home, one state over to Mississippi for my residency training in internal medicine and pediatrics. So I've kind of pretty much stayed in the southeast. Yes, yes, definitely, definitely staying in the southeast is good. We like that, and we were glad to uh, to get you over to uh, to Mississippi for the residency program. You've definitely been a star. Uh, married to Fred, right? Yes, and, and he's actually a emergency medicine resident, finishing his intern year today. So ah, tomorrow he'll be a that's a big milestone. Year. Yeah, that's oh, something yeah. to celebrate. I bet, I hope y'all are celebrating tonight. Oh yeah. Good. And there's one other person in your family. Do you want to mention him? Yes. And then we have a 18 month old as of tomorrow. Um, he is Fred Kinsey the third that we call Trey. Um, I guess one interesting thing about him is he was our New Year's baby um, in 2015. So he is a January one baby. <laughs> yeah, and he was. It's sort of a, a distinction that so y'all were the first uh, birth, I think, right? Oh yeah, at UMC. At UMC. So, That's yep. right. <laughs> And uh, he's cute. I have to. I tell you, he's he's really cute. Um, all he's right. Well, we're we're glad that you're here this morning. You know, one of the things we see quite often um, in patients, both in the hospital but also in the clinic, is urinary tract infections. They are certainly common in kids, and they do tend to occur uh, quite frequently. Of all the kids that have fever that we see, particularly younger kids. Um, you know, less than school age children about I mean, it's sort of hard to get the data out there, but anywhere from like eight to 10 percent of the of the kids that pre, pre, uh, present with fever will have a urinary tract infection. And the problem sometimes is they can't tell you the symptoms as in pediatrics in general. So you have to be a really good detective. You have to uh, observe a good bit. You have to rely on uh, good parents telling you, you know, this is where they're hurting. I, I know something's a little bit amiss here. Um, and then, you know, there are some differences, right, between, you know, if they're, if they're younger than a month of age rather, you know, as opposed to greater than a month of age. Right. So, so it's certainly a common problem. And, you know, so what causes a urinary tract infection? So that's actually a, a pretty long list of things that can ultimately cause urinary tract infection. And as we know, it's an infection. Um, 
typically it's caused by a bacterial infection. Um, you can also have viruses as well. And in rare instances, um, fungal infections can cause some UTIs in children. But it could be a list of things. Some kids, uh, their anatomy within their urinary tract oftentimes can be abnormal and that can make them more prone to a urinary tract infection. Um, I guess the simplest way I think of it when I'm thinking of the urinary tract, you've kind of got your kidneys and you've got these nice two tubes, your ureters that are coming down essentially to your bladder that's ultimately going to drain. So if there's any abnormality within that tract, it definitely increases your risk of getting a urinary tract infection, whether there be double tubes that are mm -hmm. coming down, so duplicate uh, ureter system, or you can have a little pouch like a ureter seal or something like that that could um, expose you to urinary tract infections. And then some people, too, are just more prone. There are things about different types of bacteria that cause urinary tract infections. Um, e. coli is just kind of one of the common ones, and some of them can have different... And that's different... something we normally find in the GI tract, right? So that's... Exactly. And because of that close proximity that sort of that's at least that's the thought process that it can sort of track back up into those into the urinary drainage system so yeah and it's like and you were mentioning different abnormalities it's almost like um you know most of my family's in construction in one way or another so i have to think about it as pipes so if the right. pipes to your house are <laughs> if there's something wrong even in you said duplicated systems i can think of some sometimes you know they'll come in and improve things and they won't take out the old pipes and you've got a duplicated system, and you can have backwash up into one part of it. Same kind of thing in the body. If you have any kind of abnormal anatomy that you're born with, and it's common. I mean, exactly. it's, it's fairly common to have that. We'll talk more about that in a little while, particularly with, with reflux or, or urine going the wrong way um, out of the bladder. So, I mean, those things can certainly set you up because those bacteria track back up. And exactly. they can set up infection. And you were mentioning, you know, some people just have it. I mean, they run in families a lot of times, right? Exactly. And then also we know, too, it's a lot more common in females than males um, as well. And then you can look into things as, you know, there's always this debate of circumcision or uncircumcision. Mm -hmm. But one thing that we do know, especially in younger kids, is that um, kids that are uh, uncircumcised are at an increased risk for uh, urinary tract infections as well. Yeah, I ran across some data on that, and particularly early on because of the differences in the skin. Exactly. Uh, that uh, it's in uncircumcised males, uh, it, it um, basically it sets you up to hold on to bacteria a little more. And once that skin, it usually changes um, over time once they get a little bit older. Um, at, but, you know, that earlier age certainly does set them up. You have to be aware of that. It's something else that you really have to be aware of uh, when they're younger. We're talking about urinary tract infections with Dr. Jasmine Kinsey this morning. We would love to hear any questions or comments that you have about urinary tract infections in your children and how to deal with those. Maybe they have some chronic infections. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. So what are the you know some of the more common situations of of abnormal drainage that that we see in in kids? So kind of one of the common things that I think people don't realize always is sometimes 
chronic constipation can yeah. definitely ultimately sure. uh, cause urinary tract infections. And if you think about it, if you, there's only so much room in the abdomen for everything. And if right. you're kind of packed with stool, that can definitely disrupt the flow essentially of urine. And so it definitely can increase their risk of urinary tract infection. Yeah, I mean, kids can. I mean, they're very good at holding on to stool. Yes. Um, you know, you may think they have more problems with with soiling and incontinence problems until they can learn how to go to the bathroom on their own with potty training. But uh, it, all it takes is one bad, uh, you know, one bad experience with a kid. And as far as they're concerned, nothing good ever came out of their bottom. So they're just going to hold on to it. They've got, once they have that control about it, they can really hold on to stool and put a lot of stool into the abdomen. And you're right. It crowds out the, the um, crowds out the, the uh, bladder, certainly changes the position of the bladder too so that they can have some problems and, and it can predispose you to urinary tract infection. So that's something if if your doctor, you know, if you're having chronic problems with that, you know, may want to discuss with them about that if if they're having problems with constipation, uh, that may be something to treat that might decrease their risk of it. Um, what about, you know, in uh, certain situations, some kids, they have cerebral palsy, they have a static encephalopathy, so they have chronic problems that may affect their bladder drainage anyway. Um, what about those kids? Do they have increased risk of urinary tract infections? And oftentimes they do, because if you think about it, you you know, your bladder, its job is ultimately to store urine and empty it. So if you've mm-hmm. got any type of neurological or chronic neurological problem that affects that, you've kind of created this pool of area for bacteria essentially to grow. So they are not as effective sometimes in emptying their bladder as you and I are. Um, so they definitely can see more cases of urinary tract infections. And some of them um, oftentimes can require catheterization. And right. so the use of catheters and things like that can ultimately um, increase their risk too. That's one thing we don't do as much with children, but certainly mm-hmm. if they do have a catheter in and we can get it out, uh, more so for a, for adult patients and older patients, older adolescents. But if they do have a catheter in, we try to get it out as soon as possible because of the increased risk of infections and uh, as l- the longer they stay in. In and out catheterization, that's, that's periodic catheterization for some patients. So if their bladder doesn't empty. Uh, so basically instead of having a tube in there all the time to let urine pass, uh, they'll have in and out catheterization. Some older adolescents and young adults, they learn how to do this themselves. Uh, it's certainly that they can do for the rest of their lives, but there is an increased risk because of that foreign body, which is the catheter that they're putting into the into the bladder every time. And what about, you know, sexual activity is one too. So that's, that's a well-documented increase uh, in women who, after having sex, they'll, they'll have increased risk of UTIs. And that's something Certainly with our adolescents, we at least, you know, nobody wants to think about that happening, but you definitely need to to ask about it and to bring it up. So that's certainly another risk factor for urinary tract infections. And some families just seem to have them. Seems to just run in families. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And we don't really understand all of that. Seems to be some kind of genetic predisposition, whether that's uh, the actual mucosa, which is the surface lining of those tubes that drain out from, uh, from the bladder, the urethra. Um, they think sometimes there may be some, some differences in that mucosa, uh, that allows bacteria to adhere to it, to latch on to it and to cause infection. Um, so what about fever? Does that, is that a big problem with UTIs or is it common 
to not have fever with UTIs in kids? So the interesting thing about kids is we always have to think of the age ranges too. So a lot of times in our younger children, definitely less than two months or so, fever is oftentimes the presenting sign of a urinary tract infection. They, again, can't tell us what's wrong. Um, and it's a, a pretty large number of kids sometimes that present with fever in the emergency setting oftentimes have a urinary tract infection. When they get a little bit older, not always, they don't always have a fever associated with it, but definitely depending if they've got a fever and significant symptoms, sometimes that makes you worry about um, how significant the infection is, especially if you're talking about a low grade fever versus higher fevers and um, whether we're talking about just a urinary tract infection um, of like the lower tract or if something more complicated like a pyelonephritis where we're thinking of um, higher in the urinary tract. So it really just depends on how the child looks, their age. Right. And you brought up a couple of good issues that we probably need to clarify a little bit about. So the, you know, a lot of times we'll make the distinction a lower urinary tract infection, which generally means either the urethra uh, which is the tube connecting the bladder to the outside in males or females, and then the bladder itself. But if you get higher than that, usually you're talking about pyelonephritis, which is a, an infection in and around the kidney. And those certainly, it's a worse infection, usually has to have IV antibiotics to treat, uh, would require hospitalization most of the time. Uh, and can carry with it uh, some complications down the, ro- the road, right? Exactly. And and those people usually, versus like a lower urinary tract infection, when you have the more serious or complicated urinary tract infections, your risk of um, ultimate renal scarring or, or chronic kidney disease is a little bit higher if you have recurrent, more serious infections. And it is, uh, I should point this out, if you've had, uh, if a child has had frequent urinary tract infections, that can be a risk factor for high blood pressure in children exactly. later on. That's one of the most common secondary causes of, uh, of high blood pressure. So those are some of the, some of the main things. Oh, and fever. I wanted to say one word about fever, too, because people get conflicting things out there about what is fever, what's not fever, what is this high-grade, low-grade business about fever. So what's a fever? So a fever, we consider it 100.4 um, is what we consider a fever. That's kind of across the board. And Not 104, 100.4. 100.4. Right. That's, that's um, a good distinction. And the thing that gets a little bit tricky with that is I know we see a lot of time in practice we'll have parents that come in and they're like, my baby is always 97.4 and we're 99 today. That's a fever for my child. But a lot of times when we're diagnosing infections and illnesses and things of that nature, 100.4 is kind of that magic number that we look at to say that a person does in fact have a fever. Yeah. And in high grade fevers, anything over about 102, mm-hmm. um, particularly in younger individuals, that's going to be a, a high grade fever. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear us talk about that in medical language speak. Um, and that, all that means is there's more risk of other things going on. Maybe there may be some atypical or different bacteria other than E. coli that could be causing it, or it might be higher up in the drainage system up toward the kidneys uh, if we're talking about urinary tract infections. And sometimes we'll treat those the same way, but, but if, they, if you have enough of those other things going on, Uh, That's when we get a little bit more serious about what we're doing. We're talking about urinary tract infections, and we'll get to bedwetting in just a few minutes. We would love to hear any kind of questions that you have about urinary tract infections uh, or bedwetting. 
difficulties that you're having with your kids or your family, the number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary, works by 52 modern masters. Selections from the Roy R. Neuberger Collection, the latest in the Annie Laurie Swaim Heron Memorial Exhibition Series. Details at msmuseumart.org. MPB Think Radio welcomes a brand new Sunday lineup. The new fan favorite, Backstory with the American History Guys, moves to noon to bring historical perspectives to today's events. At 1, Reveal uses investigative journalism to empower the public about tough issues in our society. Then the moth takes over at 2 and celebrates the art and craft of live storytelling. Catch the new Sunday lineup beginning July 3rd on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy here with Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, and we're talking about urinary tract infections in kids and also bedwetting coming your way next. We would love to hear from you this morning. You can give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. So we were just talking about, you know, several patients that come in, and uh, usually it's the cute little three-year-old girl, and she comes in and mom says, I know she has a urinary tract infection. I used to have urinary tract infections um, and, uh, you get a good history on her and you're, you're, you get a urine on her and her urine looks okay. It doesn't look like it has, uh, and that's something that you need to diagnose it. It's not something that we would normally in kids diagnose, uh, just by history alone. There is some good data in adults that says if you have frequent urinary tract in, infections that, uh, that sometimes just the symptoms alone, you could go ahead and treat if they're simple infections. We don't do that in kids. We need a urine sample, and there's a couple of things in that that we look at, right? So, right. Um, so uh, let's talk about that first. So what are the things that we look at in the urine? So sure. So anytime you go to the doctor and they take a quick sample, we know that a culture can take a while to ultimately grow a bacteria. So we need kind of, I guess, some things to hint towards whether or not we're concerned about an infection or not. So there are several things we look at on a urinalysis. Um, one of the things that you can look at is whether or not you see any white blood cells. As we know, that can be a sign of infection. Um, so whether or not that number is elevated is something that we look at that you can see sometimes in infections. The other thing you can see is red blood So anything really that can cause inflammation can sometimes give you a little bit of of blood in the urine as well, as well as white blood cells. And that's just that irritation to the lining of those Mm -hmm. those tubes, right? 
Right. And then other things that can kind of point us in the direction of a urinary tract infection is you can look at nitrites in the urine. That's a pretty good test to tell us whether or not we're looking at infection if it's positive. Um, So what are nitrites? So nitrites essentially (laughs) is, so we know that uh, a lot of the gram negative is a type of bacteria that we see ultimately can uh, transform can transform nitrates to nitrites. And so it's so, like they're feeding on that, right? Right, like, exactly. And so they kind of do this nice little reaction, and ultimately we get a positive test. So that usually is a pretty good test to tell us that we're dealing with an infection if it's positive. If it's negative, it does not necessarily mean that you're not dealing with a urinary tract infection. It could be another organism that doesn't share those similar um, abilities. And mm-hmm. then the last thing that we kind of look at is uh, we call it leukocyte esterase. And again, you can see that not only in infections, but you you can see it in other irritants as well that can kind of irritate the lining of the urinary tract. And that's just something white blood cells produce um, that that can help you know help attack bacteria. So you're looking at the arsenal. You're looking at the bullets right. that the uh, soldiers <laughs> in the urinary tract are producing. And uh, when you see them lying around in the urine, you might think, huh. They may be firing at something that's in here. Yeah. Right. And and again, as we mentioned, and it's not always an infection. So anything that causes irritation to the lining. So Dr. Stewart started this off talking about, you know, we get the cute little three-year-old girl that's come in and, you know, they want to be just like mommy and they've just started using their new bubble bath or some new type of soap that smells good. And we, and we see that a lot. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty common, actually. And that's just an irritant, mm-hmm. basically. It's not a true infection, but it's an irritant to the to the urethra uh, right at the opening there. So, and it, simple thing to do. You just don't use it um, if if you you know take some shower at least sort of uh, don't immerse them for a while, and it usually gets better. But it can be confused with it, and uh, particularly mm-hmm. if you're dealing with something that may or may not um, um, cause a fever. So, so what about, um, so we talked a little bit about diagnosis and, and what, what the major, um, bacteria is E. coli, which is the most common one. Of course, there's others, Proteus and sometimes Enterobacter. Um, and that's where that taking that urine and sending it for culture is important. And all the, all the culture is, is basically they're putting that urine on a plate of, uh, growth material or in a tube of growth material and they're watching it grow and then seeing what bacteria grow in that. And, you know, one thing to keep in mind is the way that you collect the urine uh, determines if you get a contaminant. In other words, we all have, no matter how good your hygiene is, everybody has bacteria on their skin everywhere. Um, And when you give a urine sample, if you don't clean off that area and do what we call a clean catch, uh, you you actually um, uh, get some of those skin bacteria that can empty out into the urine and contaminate it, and that of course then you're you're faced with okay is this a real bacteria that's causing the infection because sometimes those skin bacteria there's different kinds of staph that uh, sometimes can do that staph Saprolyticus can do that. Um, but it, you want to minimize that as much as possible. And then in some young kids, I know a lot of parents are sort of appalled. They're like, you're going to stick a tube into yes. their bladder. And it's a, it's a tough thing as a parent to, to, uh, to see your kid have that done to them, even though, uh, you know, it really doesn't have any long-term um, uh, 
uh, consequences. But, you know, is that is that necessary? And in young kids, oftentimes it really is. Um, that's going to give us our, our best bet at getting a good, clean sample. Just like Dr. Stewart was saying, you can, on our skin and other areas, there's already bacteria. And so oftentimes you have kids that are are essentially incontinent and they're supposed to be when they're that right, young. Right. Um, so for us to get a good clean sample, oftentimes using that catheter is the best way for us to do that. Every now and then we'll have, sometimes people will try to get a sample by urine bag, but again, that just increases your risk of kind of some false positive results. So definitely we've got a pretty ill kid and we want to make sure we get it right on the first time and make sure that we're treating the right type of bacteria. The catheter is going to allow us to do that. Yeah, and some people when they when you hear antibiotics too, I mean, with any kind of infection, urine, urinary tract infections, it, you know, the same kind of way. Uh, the reason why we want to be sure what individual bacteria is causing the infection is so we can select the appropriate antibiotic. And I think a lot of times people th- have this notion that well, there are weaker antibiotics, and then there are really really strong antibiotics. But is that, I mean, is that how we think about antibiotics or? That's not exactly how we think about antibiotics sometimes. More so the antibiotics, it's more, so each antibiotic is geared toward treating particular types of bacterial infections. And I guess sometimes when people think of maybe weaker versus stronger antibiotics, we do have some antibiotics that are able to treat a larger group of bacteria. And so we're not necessarily as focused on treating one type of bacteria. And so that's that's what can really help us with our culture is it can allow us to narrow things down as far as what antibiotic we're using. And the big thing that we start to worry about these days and making sure we're getting it right is antibiotic resistance. So you yeah, want to make sure you're thing. getting it right. Yeah, we see way too much of that these days. And uh, if you, uh, you know, if you continue to use the same antibiotic or the inappropriate antibiotics right. and the length of time that you use them sometimes, too, and, and uh, you know, uh, when you take it, making sure that you take the antibiotics appropriately, like they're prescribed. If you miss a couple of doses and then restart them, that gives that bacteria a little bit of time to sort of regroup and develop resistance against those uh, or down the road. But we're really losing a lot of our good uh, antibacterial agents, the antibiotics, uh, because of that resistance. And, and, urinary, and urinary tract infections are driving a lot of that. And that's why, we, you know, it's always really important, too, that if you're concerned, if you have any type of infection, you know, seeing a doctor and not just pulling that bottle of antibiotics that you've got left over from a rash you had or something to right. treat maybe a urinary tract infection. We just have so many different ba- antibiotics that treat different things that it's always good to just know exactly what we're treating. So here's an email. It says, um, if you had if you had urinary tract infections as a child, does that uh, roll over to problems as an adult? So in other words, are you going to have urinary tract infections as an adult if you had a lot of them as a child? I guess the biggest thing is what caused your urinary tract infections mm-hmm. as a child can sometimes determine whether or not you're going to have them as an adult. If you're, you know, had kind of some of the abnormalities that we talked about and if you underwent any type of procedures or things like that, that definitely can increase your risk of urinary tract infections later. We talked about kind of a little bit of a genetic component. If it runs in your family, you had a lot as a child and then a lot of your other family members have them as well. You definitely can see them um, as adults too, but kind of your typical run-of-the-mill urinary tract infections, not a lot of other risk factors, not um, a strong family history. You usually don't have those complications down the road. 
Yeah, and, and as a child, too, uh, you know, it's sort of like allergies, too. You really can't predict some of those things adequately. Uh, there's not much you can do. Now, chronic infections, sometimes there are some special situations where either there's something that needs to be corrected anatomically, so maybe there's a surgery that needs to be done, and we'll talk about reflux next, um, and which is one of the more common ones. But also, if there's any kind of abnormality, sometimes there's special situations where your physician might say, um, I know it seems a little counterintuitive to what we just said, <laughs> but they may need antibiotics all the time, like an antibiotic every day to help prevent those infections. Uh, but those are rare. That's not everybody. Right. Uh, and it's pretty controversial, too. If you look at, you know, uh, does that really decrease the, the infections or what are we going to do about? Uh, I mean, it really is a big scare in the medical community about what are we going to do when we don't have antibiotics? Right. Um, because we're losing more of those every decade. We're losing one or two more that are really good. Talking about urinary tract infections this morning on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens here with Dr. Jasmine Kinsey. The number to call if you have a question or comment is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at kidsandteens at mpbonline.org. So let's say you treat the infection um, with an antibiotic and they get better. This is over a month of age. Uh, should the, what should you do after that? Should you just should you, they have another urine specimen checked? Should they have any further testing done? What do you do if it's you know if this is their first infection? So again, it's pediatrics. It's all kind of based on age. So when we're dealing with um, your first urinary tract infection as a child, if you're less than two, we recommend that you go ahead and get imaging done. So the kind of where we start is a renal ultrasound. That's a nice kind of uh, test that's not invasive. It's very easy to do um, and not quite as expensive as some other test. And so that's usually just kind of where we start off basic wise. It always becomes a question of, I know a lot of parents how do we know the infection's gone? Do we need a repeat mm-hmm. culture or anything like that? That is something we actually don't recommend. We don't right. go repeating the uh, culture unless, of course, you take an abnormal co- course, right. um, not just kind of your typical um, way of going. But definitely, if you're younger and this is your first uh, urinary tract infection, you at least need a renal ultrasound to see if that looks okay. If you've had multiple urinary tract infections, you would need one as well, too. And again, if there's a strong family history, we recommend imaging in all those kids as well. So the more complicated, those are the ones that we're going to have have those imaging studies or or multiple infections. Right. So, and that ultrasound, basically what they're looking at is they're looking at the, the architecture or how the kidney looks itself, if there's any scarring there. Some of that is to make sure that, that you don't need to follow that up later if they're at risk for some of the things we've been talking about. All right, let's go to Earl in Natchez. Good morning, Earl. Oh, are you with us, Earl? Hold on just a second. We'll get you on. Good morning, Earl. Good morning. I enjoy your show. I uh, <laughs> was wondering if there was something you could tell us to do to prevent some of these infections, uh, some sort of a juice like cranberry juice to drink on a regular basis or maybe a regular dose of castor oil to prevent bio blockage or something. And 
be able to uh, prevent these things from taking place. That's a great question, Earl. So, so what do you think, Dr. Kinsey? So, so what can we do to prevent these things? So the biggest things you can do is just kind of, we say hydration is one mm-hmm. of the big things. Make sure we're drinking plenty of water, flushing kind of flushing out. things out, getting those bacteria um, cleaned out. I always tell people, I don't think cranberry juice will hurt anyone. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> is a way to do it. Um, some people recommend that and kind of live by it ultimately um, as well. Kids, on the other hand, we want to watch out on the juice intake. I have to kind of give my blurb. <laughs> (laughs) on that one that we don't want to take too much juice intake so those are usually the two biggest things that i say as far as preventing yeah the data are on on uh, cranberry juice uh they really haven't looked at it as much in children it's more so in adults uh, but there is a little bit of evidence that maybe in some circumstances it's helpful. Again, as Dr. Kinsey said, for an adult or an older kid, you know, adolescent, it's not going to hurt anything unless they're just drinking four gallons of juice a day. Uh, but that hydration issue, and some people think that just the cranberry juice alone, the way it works, it's just more hydration. So if you think about it, if you're flushing more water through your kidneys by drinking more water, and that gets excreted, it doesn't give the bacteria time to really sit around in the bladder uh, or in the urethra uh, because they get washed out with that increased fluid intake. So um, I think sometimes those simple things we forget about, and particularly Mm -hmm. here in, in the South when it's so hot right now, you know, we run a lot of risk of kidney stones oh, yeah. uh, because we get dehydrated and there's not enough. Uh, one way you can you can remedy that is by drinking more water and we lose a lot of it. So that's a great question, Earl. So I would yeah. say yes to cranberry juice. Probably not going to hurt. Well, I've had about times with kidney stones about seven times. And so oh. I, I try to keep plenty of water on hand myself. That's okay, a, well, I certainly do. Thank you. Thank you for yeah, calling. Buddy. We have appreciate it. Show and, uh, appreciate listening to you. Thank you. Thank have, you. Have a good day. Let's go to Taylor in Oxford. Good morning, Taylor. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Yeah, thank you for having me. I love listening to your guys' show, and uh, this topic it, it hits home for me because uh, I had a kidney stone at age fourteen, and uh, I'm in my mid twenties now. And the doctor recommended that it was small enough that I could pass it on my own. But since then, I'm more prone to UTIs and uh, more kidney stones, too. And I'm a lot like Earl. I try to keep water on hand and and stay hydrated as often as possible. Um, But I was wondering if there's anything that we can do to sort of heal that tissue that maybe would have gotten scarred. Yeah, if you have recurrent injury to those uh, to those tissues, either the urethra, uh, you can develop some scar tissue on it. You're exactly right, and you can get like a, a urethral stricture. Any type of abnormal surface in those pipes can set you up for urinary tract infection. So, uh, yeah, that can that can be a complication. As far as what to do to heal that and take. There's not a whole lot of things that I'm aware of, Dr. Kinsey, Me neither. That, 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 can, that you can take to do that. The biggest thing is making sure that you get follow-up with, uh, you know, with the ultrasound that we, that we mentioned earlier uh, and stone analysis. I don't know, Taylor, did they, did they analyze those stones to see what type of kidney stone? A lot of people don't realize there's more than one type of kidney stone. Mine was mostly mineral deposits from um, overconsumption of calcium yeah. and iron and other minerals in a multivitamin that I had been taking. So so then that's common. So, uh, you you know, the calcium salts or calcium carbonate, mostly calcium oxalate, uh, those are some of the more common um, uh, kidney stones. 
And sometimes you can take uh, things to prevent the kidney stone part of it. So I don't know if they recommended uh, for your particular type of stone, vitamin C, uh, or de- certainly decreasing the amount of calcium that you had. But even more importantly, as you mentioned earlier, and Earl mentioned, that, that fluid intake is probably the biggest thing that can help. Um, and you do see that in the south, but particularly in the summertime. We see more stones once the weather gets hotter, once we lose more uh, fluids through our skin, through perspiration. So, perspiration. So, um, yeah, as far as I, as I know, nothing to take that would heal that up and you know, you might want to make sure that your physician is is looking at if you have multiple uh, kidney stones and infections. They may, if they haven't already, uh, they might want to look at your your kidneys and your bladder to make sure it's emptying out appropriately. Because sometimes you can have reflux as an adult that maybe didn't get picked up. And we've mentioned that a couple of times this morning. Reflux is just you have these little valves, mm-hmm. the two tubes, one each coming from each kidney to the bladder. There's a little valve there. If it doesn't work appropriately, you can have urine that goes back upstream into those uh, ureters back towards the kidney, and that predisposes you to infection. So it may be something that they want to, you know, if you're having a lot of those uh, Taylor uh, infections, they may want to look at that. Okay. Thank you very much for the advice. I appreciate it. Sure, and thanks for calling. We're talking about urinary tractions, uh, urinary tractions, urinary tract <laughs> infections this morning uh, in kids and some in, in adults too, and kidney stones. If you have a question or comment, you can call us this morning at one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or you can email us at kids and teens at mpbonline dot org. Uh, let's go to Kelly and Jackson. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning. My question is uh, more related to bedwetting in children and specifically kind of at the beginning of the, the potty training phase. Um, what what can we expect? How can I encourage my, my little girl uh, when, when that does happen? Yeah, so, so bedwetting, most of the time we're talking about when they're asleep at night. That's, that's mm-hmm. the most problems with it. So uh, what about that, Jasmine? Do you think uh, anything in particular you would you would say? So the biggest thing is, you know, a lot of times when kids are, are less than five years old, we don't necessarily expect them to have 100% dry nights or really consider it bedwetting at that point. So kind of when we're in that potty training phase or stage, we expect to have a few kind of wet nights ultimately and kind of is really dependent on the child. And I think we kind of read a lot of books and look at a lot of things and think that we've got it all figured out, this perfect way of doing it. But I think it ultimately depends on the child as far as how quickly they'll learn to potty train and have kind of some bedwetting phases. So usually early on, we expect to see it quite a bit. Yeah, at age five, about 15% of kids are still going to be wetting the bed at night. Right. So they're, you know, you think about that's a lot of kids. And an important thing, Kelly, to, to keep in mind is, the, the goals right now. And I would say during the day, you probably need to master that with potty training first before you're comfortable with doing things at night. Um, because you're more relaxed at night, you're more likely to have, you know, have some of those, but if you're doing pretty good during the day, then you may want to, you know, move on to the, to the night. It, inconsistencies in what you do and consistencies with potty training are huge. Um, you know, if, if you're some nights, if they're wearing, uh, a diaper and some nights they're not, uh, it's training. So it's, right. if you have inconsistencies mm-hmm. in the training process, 
sometimes that can set them up to, to not do as well. So um, what about uh, like a pull-up versus just regular underwear during the day? Is that inconsistent or is that is that No, no, that's normal? fine. Yeah, that's fine. Because what you want them to do is to, is to transition from just going when they feel mm-hmm. like it mm-hmm. to letting you know. Uh, you know, just, that's that's a, one of the initial steps to uh, in, in that pull up. They they you know, and they're going to have some accidents. I mean, that's just mm-hmm. an inevitability. Um, unfamiliar situations too. You know, that's the worst time we want them to have an accident, but that's when they're going to have it. Uh, and there may be some times, depending on when they they like, if they have a spend the night party, even as an older kid. That's very common to have that happen. Sometimes you might want to protect them during those times, but day in and day out. Having that consistency, pull-ups are great. They're a great transitional tool to use uh, as you're working toward, you know, as, uh, with potty training. Okay, well, thank you very much. All right, thank you for calling, Kelly. Let's go to John in Biloxi. Good morning, John. Thank you for calling. You bet. Um, so I have a, another uh, bedwetting question. Uh, I have a 12-year-old daughter who has been a bedwetter throughout. We have been to... Uh, pediatric urologist and you know there's some structural reasons why she still does and but she you know she gets a lot of UTIs and she's taking uh, desmopressin now um, but we struggle with the making sure she doesn't drink the two hours before she takes the desmopressin getting her stubborn self to go to the bathroom <laughs> and fully empty um, you know and so I'm, I just kind of wonder you know, what, where do we go now? Because it seems like everything we've done, we just don't seem to be making any progress. Yeah, those are, those are common questions, John. It, it, when, anytime you have an anatomical difference or, a, mm-hmm. you know, that can sort of complicate things. Uh, certainly in a 12-year-old, that's a little bit outside the normal range. But if you've got reasons why you're bedwetting, as you mentioned, uh, then it becomes trying to do the best you can with training in conjunction with other things you're doing. Uh, generally we have a stepwise approach. So behavioral changes, and you mentioned a couple of those shifting fluid intake to earlier in the day. Uh, a lot of people will say 40% of what your child drinks in a day or adolescent, uh, between when they wake up at noon, another 40% before two or three o'clock. And then that other 20% after that, trying to make sure they don't drink caffeinated drinks or drinks with a lot of sugar in it, because that can also make you, uh, go to the bathroom more at night. Uh, and then bladder training during the day, as you mentioned, fully emptying that bladder, having scheduled potty time, um, and the desmopressin. Desmopressin is, an, is a hormone that helps you hold on to water at night. Uh, and um, it's very effective usually, but it does have to, ha- you have to really, as you mentioned, cut back on those other things. With a 12-year-old, here's what, here's what I would do. I would try to find out what's important to her. And capitalize on that and say, okay, um, this is what the, let's let's establish some goals here. What do you want to do to change things? Because if she doesn't want to change, as you know, you know, a twelve-year-old is just going to do what they want to do, and then maybe pick one of those things to to work on over time and sort of work from there. But it's um, once you reach adolescence with a chronic problem, even if it's a minor chronic problem. It becomes it becomes uh, less minor and more major. Um, right. So so I would uh, at twelve, she's probably starting to think, who am I away from my parents? And um, mm-hmm. I would give her some options, uh, see what's important to her, and then say, okay, let's pick a couple of things that you can do and that you want to do. 
that puts the ball in her court. It makes her feel better that she's in charge of things. Um, but you know, some of the, some of the mistakes we make with adolescents is we try to say, okay, you're going to do this. Uh, and it doesn't work with adolescents the way it does with younger children. So that's, that's basic things I would try to do and then have a good reward system. And that works even for 12 year olds. So, so something that can make them, you know, to feel good about themselves. Uh, maybe if she goes a couple of nights without doing that or has less of them, Total continence, total not going to the, you know, not wetting the bed at night. That may not be something that is that is adequate, that, that that's a, an attainable goal for her. So maybe it's less. Maybe if she's going three times during the week, maybe you shoot for once or twice. Um, but you know, I would I would let her pick out those goals and may, maybe having a, a reward system. Okay, well we'll give it a go. All right, thanks for calling, John. Thank you. All right, bye bye. That's a difficult. That's always a difficult yeah, one. Yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah, an adolescent Especially problems. When you're older. Yeah, as as a father of two adolescents now, <laughs> it's quite a challenge on a number of uh, number of fronts. Let's go to Ashley in Mobile with a question on bedwetting. Good morning, Ashley. Good morning. Um, I I'm calling about some adolescents who are um, well. Let's just say that we've been adolescents for decades. Okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and, and I have a dear friend who I am very concerned about, um, when there is a visit between us, um, uh, because Mobile is a climate where you need to stay hydrated. This person comes from an area where hydration is not as emphasized because of the difference in climate, um, uh. Now, first of all, uh, I've noticed that uh, he, this is a, uh, he does not drink that much water. He drinks water, but he doesn't drink it that often. He does not um, uh, go to the bathroom that often. Um, uh, my, my questions are, what sorts of things can I offer during these visits that are um, uh, non-caffeine, uh, tea is the, for the, because of the tannic acid. I know that that might be a problem. Are there herbal teas that are better? Are there waters and drinks possibly with fruit that is, of course, sliced into it? And, and different fruits, what fruits might be better? And finally, for the kicker here, does carbonation add to the problem? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, can I ask how old this person is? Uh, as I said, we are um, uh, we are in the, what's called the um, the golden age. Okay? <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, that's 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 good. Okay, so uh, what I would say is uh, you really have to uh, some of those things. Certainly, I would I would start off with simple things. So not having a lot of fluid intake at night, no matter what that fluid intake is. Um, you mentioned herbal teas. Uh, if they have caffeine, you know, caffeine is a diuretic. You're going to go to the bathroom more. That's why people do that after they drink their cup of coffee in the morning or tea. Um, sugar content, and that's true sugar content, not artificial sweeteners. That'll make you go because your body has to sort of get rid of that excess sugar, and it's a, it's also a diuretic in the kidney. Um, there are other substances that might make you go. Some power drinks or energy drinks have diuretics in them. They don't explicitly say that but they the some of the ingredients will make you go more that's why they've sort of touted as weight loss um you know additives uh to to uh to what you're doing 
Uh, you can't go wrong with water, though. I mean, water is 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 the best hydration that the body is is designed to have. Uh, you can add some things in there for flavoring. Uh, I'm not aware of any roots or other things that you put in there. Some people use ginger. Ginger's been studied in herbal medicine uh, trials. It's a great uh, calming effect on the GI tract. Uh, that may be something that you want to try. I'm not aware of any kind of diuretic effect with that. Um, but that, that may be something that you try to, to, to put in there. There are some flavored non-sugar additives, crystal light being one of them, um, that, that, you know, some people just, they just, they're like, I just want something in my water that tastes better. Um, but I would steer clear of those other things and then sort of just try it, you know, simply. And sometimes the best thing for somebody is what they're going to actually drink. So you can put, particularly having somebody who's been a teenager for decades, as you mentioned, they may be pretty set in their ways. I'm just throwing that out there. That might be, you know, a, a possibility. And you may have to just say, hey, what would you drink uh, out of these options? Uh, what can I do for you to offer you? So that, that may be one, uh, one way that you uh, address that. How does that sound, Ashley? Carbonation. How does car- what carbonation. carbonation? Yeah, carbonation doesn't do anything from the kidney standpoint. So all that carbonation that's actually in there is something that the GI tract, all that fizz is out of it. If you think about it, that has to be absorbed into the GI tract. The uh, All the gas part of it, very little of that gets absorbed across that membrane. So it, once it's in the bloodstream, all the carbonation is pretty much out of it. Uh, it's, it's the water, it's the actual, you know, the actual water content of that, that if once you drink it and you absorb it, it's got to come out at some point. Uh, so the more you drink, the more that's going to come out and pushing that earlier in the day can certainly help. Um, some people go so much though during the day, and this is a children and adults that their bladder never gets trained to stretch. So even though you need to do that multiple times a day and not wait all day long, like sometimes teachers and doctors and nurses do a lot, we're guilty of that ourselves. Yeah. Um, but but you need to to allow that bladder at least to stretch out a little bit. If you're going every 30 minutes all through the day, uh, it's not going to work at night because your bladder never stretches out enough to really, you know, to, to handle that extra volume that it needs at night. So carbonation, I'd say that's probably okay. Uh, although I, I would vote for, for water, uh, as a standalone, uh, maybe with a couple of things thrown in, but avoiding that caffeine and sugar. Thank you so much, doctor. Sure. Thank you for, for listening and calling today. Lots of good questions about bedwetting. I and mean, that is something that we see a lot oh, in yeah. kids. And, um, what about alarms? Let's, uh, we got a couple of minutes left to talk about that. And a lot of people use those. So what's the use of an alarm and what, what does that mean? I think some people think, okay, you're shocking my child. What's going on? Exactly. I'll be honest. When I was kind of learning about bedwetting myself and studying, that's what I kept thinking. That's about the only way to wake someone up is maybe to shock them, but that's not quite, <laughs> that's not quite That'd how the alarms go. We're, we're not advocating that here on Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. <laughs> so essentially the, uh, bedwetting alarms are, it's really the, 
one great thing you pointed out with our earlier caller is kind of what works for your family and what works for your child. So alarms are an option, I would say, more so for somebody long term. It's not always a good answer for short term. So if you're uh, getting ready for a summer camp or something like that, you know, Desmopressin or the medication might be a better option. But if you're looking kind of for a more long term solution to bedwetting alarms is the way to go. And it doesn't shock your child. <laughs> it actually sounds like an alarm ultimately and or it vibrates just kind of depending. retraining them to say, right. hey, wake you up and wake say, you hey, up, you just went. go to the bathroom. Exactly. Yeah. All right. We want to thank all our callers today and Dr. Kinsey for being with us. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from the members of the Foundation for Public Broadcasting in Mississippi. Today's show was engineered by Jay White. Our call screener was Sam Wells. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, and you can join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now, coming up next on MPB Think Radio. Underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair is available at bcbsms.com. Monday night into Tuesday, that's going to be our best chance for any meaningful rain all the way through the 4th of July weekend. Well, you know what that means. We're also